0: It's time to face the music. It's your day in court with a people's lawyer, Bruce Hagan, and attorney Ray Giudice. Welcome
1: to your day in court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Giudice. My name is Tug Cowart. This is Extra 1063. I always start the show by letting you know how to get a hold of renowned lawyers, Bruce Hagan and Ray Giudice. And Bruce, we'll
2: go to you first. Yeah, uh, great to be here today. Bruce Hagen, H-A-G-E-N. You can call me anytime, 404-522-7553. It was the number to take you right to me. You can also email me, Bruce at Hagen-Law.com. Hagen-Law.com is our website that has a ton of great information. One thing that's very useful is if you are the parent of a teenage driver, we have a teenage driving contract that is a tremendous resource that sets out the rights and responsibilities that you give to your teenage driver and that you as their parent take on to make sure that this is a two-way street and that you're fulfilling your responsibilities to them uh, as the parent of a teenage driver. It's it's a great resource. I encourage everybody to look at um, teenage drivers really need our help and support because they are being handed over a deadly instrument in a car, and you want to make sure that you're giving them every possible opportunity to succeed in this role and to be accountable if they're just not mature enough to handle that kind of responsibility.
3: All right, cool. And Ray, how do we get hold of you? Hey, good morning. Thanks for taking the time to listen to Bruce and I and Tug this morning, 404 964 Four one eight five. I did not give you my office number. I just gave you my cell phone number. And I keep that thing with me all the time. Call me if you need me. Text me if you need me. Email me, ray at rayglaw.com. If you just want to learn a little bit about me, my law firm, the things I've done over the last many years of practice, rayglaw.com.
1: All right, as we lead up to the Super Bowl, uh, stories about the NFL are getting more press. And one that is really getting a lot of attention actually happened last week after the Pro Bowl, which was in Las Vegas. Alvin Kamara, who is a native of Norcross, Georgia, was arrested and booked on suspicion of batteries resulting in substantial bodily harm. Police allege that Kamara and three others beat a man until he was unconscious in a club in Vegas. And according to the report, they stomped on the victim's face and chest 23 times punched him nine times with eight punches coming from alvin kamara himself fractured eye socket among many many other injuries according to police and he was put into the hospital where do you begin with this ray
3: Well, we have to start off where all criminal defense lawyers are required to start off. which is that Mr. Kamara is owed the title presumption of innocence. He has the right to enter not guilty pleas. He has the right to offer mitigating evidence like this was a mutual fight, a mutual fray. Mr. Green said something about my heritage. Uh, He came at me first, I was defending myself, and I have no idea what these other guys did to him, because I was, you know, as soon as I defended myself, I left. So that's kind of your standard, (laughs) how do we start the case as a criminal defense lawyer, that's our theory, and then then we look for evidence that may be supportive of that. So that being said... And so many of these type of cases that we talk about or here on the news or TMZ are, you know, they really are, he said, she said, pushing and shoving or, you know, very mutual. Now, I'm going to say that there seems to be some evidence that this is not mutual. Uh, and it seems to be some evidence, photographic evidence, videotape. Video. And we've, we've done many shows now leading up to this morning about you know, how the video cameras, the drone cameras, the the iPhones, the iReporters have really changed uh, law cases, lawsuits, criminal cases, both positively and negatively, depending on what side of the of the film you're on and, and what you're doing when you're being filmed. I would say that this gentleman is going to be in, in deep water if, in fact, there is video of him striking Mr. Green multiple times and that Mr. Green, I'm sorry, Mr. Kamara's associates, we can call him his posse, then stomped on this victim. I see a picture that's posted that allegedly is Mr. Green, and this is not a one-shot, pop-in-the-nose, you know, two men squared off each other and, and threw down. This really does look like a beatdown. The guy looks like he's in terrible shape, and to break, Bruce can talk better about this, address it, but to break the orbit around the eye is not your standard punch in the eye. That's usually... Something forceful like a kick, a stomp, or a, or a hard object to break that eye bone that circles the eye. That's a tough fracture. It requires an enormous amount of surgery to put that back together. So uh, if Mr. Green has sustained these levels of injuries, there's going to be, I believe, criminal prosecution uh, of both um, Alvin Kamara and his quote-unquote associates. The associates may rat on Alvin, throw him under the bus, and say, hey, he was he's our boss. We're on his payroll. We're his bodyguards. We thought he was being attacked. So we defended him. Uh, Alvin's going to throw, you know, throw those guys under the bus. Hey, I was defending myself against this guy's insults. And these idiots took off on their own, you know, and beat the tar out of the poor guy. So it'll be an interesting criminal case. Uh, I don't think this one's going to go away easy. I think this is going to lead to both criminal prosecution uh, and maybe an NFL suspension. Of course, the NFL... When we wonder what their lawyers advise the commissioner and the uh, and the owners, it's just sometimes I don't know where they get their ideas from. They seem to botch about everything they touch. It's really going to be up to local law enforcement in this case. And of course, we wouldn't have a good show if there wasn't going to be a lawsuit come out of this.
2: Right, Bruce? That's 100% correct. <laughs> March 8th is
1: the exact day that it uh, should be well released on bond schedule for a court hearing on the 8th, Bruce.
2: And, and Ray, of course, is 100% correct uh, when it comes to video evidence. And one thing you have to know in Las Vegas is that everywhere you go, there are cameras. Uh, and, and it's not necessarily to catch uh, events like this so much as to make sure that nobody's stealing from the casino. This happened at an elevator, at a uh, casino hotel at about 6.30 in the morning. And so you know that this is going to be captured on multiple video cameras. I'm sure that evidence has been provided to the police already and will come public. It always seems like TMZ gets this kind of thing first. I don't know how they do it. They've become like the most reliable they source have. of information since the National Inquiry. It's hard to believe.
3: (laughs) And they're they're fast, man. You'll read about this story four days from now in the New York Times.
2: Yeah, and so one of the things, and, and certainly you were asking, like, what sort of defenses would Alvin Kamara have to the criminal action? If he's with a large group of people and there's a melee of some sort, one of his defenses may be that he's not the one who battered Mr. Green, that it was somebody else in the group. And, you know, depending on the nature of this group, they may there may be somebody in there whose job it is to step up and take responsibility for misdeeds done by the guy who's earning the big paycheck. Because if Kamara goes down, then their whole uh, opportunity to sort of feed off of him disappears. Whereas if somebody who is, uh, you know, on Kamara's payroll takes the hit for it, all right, he takes his lumps and uh, moves on and and doesn't disrupt the uh, economy economic engine that is Alvin Kamara. So that you know you may see some of that too, and multiple charges against multiple parties. We only hear about Alvin Kamara because he's the big name, but if there are five people there and Mr. Green can't say which is the one who punched him, which is the one who kicked him, uh, and if it's not readily apparent on the video, then this changes. Now, we've seen other instances involving professional football players. Ray Rice comes to mind where there was nobody else on the elevator but Mr. Rice and the woman that he punched, and you see playing in his day that he he punches her, and there was no ambiguity whatsoever in that situation we'll know once we see what that video looks like, obviously as to civil charges yeah that that could come almost regardless of whether Kamara is the one who threw the punch or kicked the kick, um, merely if these are just people in his orbit, um, the civil case will certainly come for injuries and, and likely just get settled for some sort of a lump sum, as Ray says, a fractured orbital bone, which is that bone that circles your eyeball and holds it in place. Uh, is not the easiest thing in the world to accomplish and requires a lot of force to get that done. So, you know, clearly this is a, a big injury. We have situations come up in our cases all the time where there's police video or police photographs, but while there's a pending case, we can't get that information. Uh-huh. Um, so we can't get that in the civil case. We try Open Records acts, freedom of information, and we can't get that sort of thing. <laughs> but like we were saying, somehow TMZ seems to get it uh, right away in a lot of these cases. Regardless of uh, the pending criminal case, uh, it is pretty remarkable. I'm sure that there are folks uh, getting their palms greased along the way. But whatever it is, I, I suspect we will see this probably just in time for the Super Bowl.
1: I got to tell First you, <laughs> that dog is going to get somebody and you're going to be in no, no, it. This some is sort. the
2: funniest thing. So, so, so I'm at my niece's house and there's a chihuahua and a full grown pit bull. And this Chihuahua is bossing around the pit bull like you've never seen it. It really just goes to show that it. old axiom, you know, it's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. This little Chihuahua is a tyrant.
1: I love it. And uh, maybe you don't know that uh, Bruce is uh, down in Florida connecting with us. The show is important, so we uh, we do it nonetheless. Even when uh, people are out of town, that's the dedication that uh, Ray and Bruce have to your day in court.
3: Bruce, tactical question. If Mr. Green, the victim, co- alleged victim, comes to you, are you filing suit pretty quickly, or are you going to sit back and wait and see what develops with law enforcement?
2: Um, I want to file suit very quickly and get this thing uh, right mm-hmm. out there and make, make it an issue that uh, Mr. Kamara is going to have to deal with before he gets back in the good graces of uh, whether it's the Saints or whoever he's playing for next year. Uh, I, I want this out there, and I feel like that's where my leverage is. Um, and, you know, things pe- people disappear. Mm-hmm witnesses i i want to get to right. uh, those who are in a position to offer testimony right away uh, right even though I, I understand that uh if there are criminal charges pending against any of, of the people that we would go against they might plead their fifth amendment right against self-incrimination and refuse to testify but still going to get after it
3: but there's the, and what you're addressing is really the procedural nuts and bolts of a lawsuit get yeah. the lawsuit filed in the right jurisdiction You've got this, you know, this group of associates or posse. We don't know if they flee the jurisdiction or go back to their homes in another state. So you want to get service of process on them as quickly as possible. You want to get your uh, spoilation letters out to any of the many video cameras, whether at the club or at the restaurant across the street. You want to get notice to take depositions of the witnesses who can't invoke the Fifth Amendment, you can get them down, and you wanna get your investigator on this case from day one, rebuilding it. In fact, from the plaintiff's side, Bruce's side, why he'd be doing that, maybe, is to put all this great evidence in a box with a bow on it and take it over to the district attorney's office, who's probably working on 50 murders, 10 cocaine sales, 20 sexual assaults, and says, "You know, I really don't have an investigator to look up this, this little fight that took place, which is important to a lot of people, but sometimes not to the big city district attorney's office.
1: Ray, we'll have to leave it right there. When we come back, I want to ask you two how you became the renowned lawyers that you are now. How'd you get your legal career started? We'll discuss it next on your day in court on Extra 106.3.
4: 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best.
0: This is your day in court with Bruce Hagen and Ray Giudice on Extra 106.3
1: welcome back to your day in court on extra 1063 with renowned lawyers Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice to the uh, the kindest and most thoughtful people that you'll ever meet and uh, expertise that is unparalleled and unmatched and I, I was just curious when when people are deciding you know you're deciding to be a lawyer what does that when does that happen when you're eight when you're 18 when you're 20 walk me through that process and how you get to being where you arbors
2: well for me uh it's it's kind of interesting so my dad was a criminal lawyer in the bronx new york uh he was a real street lawyer never had an office uh never went to the office he was in court every day um and he also was a living a pretty modest life and and so he was there for everything my childhood He he was at every football game basketball game baseball game every practice you name it he was there for all of it so i was always intrigued by it but but personally for me Uh, I did not want to be a lawyer. I had every intention of playing professional football, and that was going to be my uh, career. Um, No one told me that uh, there's not much of a calling for five, nine Jewish kids from New York to play in the (laughs) NFL. Uh, And so I made it as far as uh, playing one year of college football at University of Florida and then realized that I had to try something else because clearly this was not going to be my future. So that's when I kind of turned my attention towards being a lawyer um and found that it was uh, actually very a very natural thing for me to do um at that point i realized like i've spent my entire childhood being cross-examined i know how to do this <laughs> you know <And> so <laughs> it was, uh, it was a pretty cool and, and clear path for me, and I'll get more into it after Ray you know, sort of goes into how he got started, but what brought this up is, um, I had a high school classmate who went to law school with Ray. Uh, his name is John Halvey, lives down in Florida, and I got to see him this past week, and uh, John, Thought it would be interesting for us to talk about kind of how Ray and I each ended up with the careers that we had because we both took a non traditional approach, I think, as uh, guys that started out on our own at a very young age and kind of crafted practices for ourselves. Whereas I look at John as he is the absolute model of what everybody that went to law school. Uh, certainly in the late 80s, mid-80s, wanted to do, which is you wanted to be at the top of your class, which John was, and, and you wanted to be an editor of the Law Review, you wanted to get the great job at the prestigious New York law firm, and then given an opportunity to work there and become a partner there. And that's the career path that he took, which I find to be just amazing. It's something that I know I never could have done. It was not right for me. Uh, I kind of figured that out early in my academic career and then certainly in my work career. Uh, Ray can explain, but I feel like he's probably in the same boat because we just weren't cut out for that sort of thing. But I'm just amazed at the folks who are. And certainly um, he's had a great career doing that, and then that led to other fantastic opportunities. So there's a lot of different ways to go about uh, having a law career or a career in law. And Ray and I have just uh, taken a a Similar but different approach to it uh, that got us uh, to become friends at an early stage and, and has had us uh, orbiting in the same circles and brought us together here for this show.
3: Yeah, it's been a circuitous route. I think the listeners may know by now that Bruce and I grew up minutes away from each other on the Cross County Parkway, probably 15, 20 minutes apart. So I didn't have that in high school. I was kind of, I took a lot of summer school and did a lot of detention in high school. Uh, which led me to being qualified to go to Orange County Community College in Middletown, New York. And on a lark, visiting a friend in Atlanta one spring, I uh, wound up at Emory University, Emory College, where they accepted me on the spot, I think because I, I had some kind of a grant that would pay tuition. Worked for two years after graduating Emory in 1980 with the uh, political science history degree, which qualifies you either to teach school with nothing wrong with that, or go to law school. Uh, I actually took two years off and worked at the Old DeKalb Farmer's Market on Medlock and Scott Boulevard in Decatur for Robert and Harry Blazers. Great guys. They worked me hard. They paid me well. And I met the person who was the dean of admissions at Emory Lost. Her name was Jane DeFalco. And every Friday afternoon, Jane, Ms. DeFalco, would come to the farmer's market where I was slicing the prosciutto and the cheeses because I was Italian, so that's where they put me. And one day she said to me, what are you doing working here? You graduated college. What do you want to do? I said, well, I've been thinking about going to law school. And she handed me her business card, and she was the director of admissions at Emory Law School. And about 60 days later, I was in the orientation where the famous lines are, look to your right, look to your left. One of these three aren't going to be here in a year. (laughs) And and that's kind of how that part got started. Sometimes late at night after three or four Johnny Walkers, I close my eyes and I say, what, what? You know, as as your heroes the grateful dead said bruce what a long strange trip it's been <laughs>
2: And, yeah. and I, I started out of law school and thought I wanted to live and work in New York for one of those big firms. Those New York firms had a different plan for me that involved about 130 rejection letters. Uh, but as it turned out, I got a great job in Atlanta with a mid sized firm. And I spent about four years at that firm doing construction litigation cases. And so I was looking over contracts and reviewing documents involving huge disputes between. Uh, general contractors and owners of projects,, uh, just to give you an idea, we had a power plant that was one of our clients. So you had you know multiple um, million dollar and, and you know hundred million dollar contracts to build a power plant that we were reviewing, and litigation all throughout. if if they built a stack at a power plant that was fifty feet high, they had a stack of documents that was a hundred feet high to try to uh, justify all the work that went into that. And so, you know, I spent two years just kind of digging through documents. And papers at this firm. And I thought, you know, that was a, uh, an area of law that interested me, but it never got me into courtroom. And that's really what I wanted to do. Uh, I left that firm after about four years, went to another firm briefly doing commercial litigation, like in the bankruptcy context. Um, I didn't like it there. They didn't like me very much there. Uh, I really should have gone out on my own uh, before I went to that firm, but I didn't think I was ready. And then in February 1992, it was 30 years ago, I just decided I'm launching my own practice. I had no money. Well, that's not entirely totally true. I had about $150. Uh, I had a lot of debt. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a computer that I didn't know how to use uh, that had been made obsolete when the 286 computer was uh, launched on the marketplace. So one of the legal systems Secretary showed me how to create a document. Uh, and I spent about a day figuring that stuff out. And then, uh, you know, opened up my own shop and immediately started saying, I-, I will take whatever it is that you need. That is my new expertise. I had one client that followed me, uh, and it was a construction matter. And I started doing their litigation. And gradually, you know, I scraped and I clawed and I did a little of this and a little of that. And I, I went door to door to all the lawyers that I knew uh, telling them I was in the refuse business, that if there was something they didn't want to do, I was willing to do it. And I took every case that came along, uh, and I took them all to trial, you know, and that was kind of my thing is like, okay, I'm, I've been a lawyer for six years, but hadn't been in a single trial. And within that first year, I was trying cases pretty much, uh, every month and, and the, you know, continued at that pace, if not faster, uh, for years, because I, I was going to make up for my lack of, uh, formal experience by getting actual courtroom experience, just doing it, and and that's exactly what I did. And you know, 200 trials or so later, you know, here we are, um, having seen just about everything under the sun. Probably about four years into my practice, I got my first personal injury claim and realized that this was something that I really enjoyed doing, partly because. I like taking care of people i liked representing people over uh companies um and i didn't have to worry about whether somebody could afford to hire me if they had a re- uh, the ability to pay a retainer or an hourly rate or a flat fee i was just going to get paid on a percentage of whatever we could get uh if and when there was a recovery and i was willing to bet on myself in that context that okay if i put this time in and don't get paid That's fine, but I think I will, and eventually, um, you know, that became the only thing I did as I started turning down all other types of cases. Um, For any lawyer that might be out there that is starting a practice or has a new practice, turning down work that you don't want to do is probably one of the most powerful things you can do to stay on target and and build your practice the right way for you.
1: You know, both of you guys have done some pretty extraordinary things leading up to uh, where you are these days. And uh, w- w- I want to talk about both of them because um, Bruce, you played at the University of Florida, played football. Most people don't know that. I didn't know that. And as we lead into the Super Bowl, I think it would be something great to kind of tell that story too. Just you know, because this is the South, this is college football. I mean, there, there's nothing people love more than that. And then, and then when we finish that, I want to get to uh, to Ray. And you were on national television on a, uh, a show with Nancy Grace. I want to get how, how all that kind of came together. And you can even see some of that on, on Ray's website. But we'll start, Bruce. You went down and played at the University of Florida. You're an old Gator.
2: I'm an old Gator, that's for sure. And I, I was uh, a, a welcomed, invited walk-on in those days, which uh, meant that my parents sort of threw me out of the car and dumped me off uh, at the football stadium right. uh, about a month before school started. And I, I walked in there and we got to... Work out with the team, practice it, it. I was telling somebody a story the other day because the Bengals are in the Super Bowl. Um, and at the time that I was there, I really was a natural defensive back, but they had enough of those, so they put me at receiver. Uh, and they called the, the walk-ons like me, we were called Gator Bait because uh, they needed something <laughs> to feed to the players. That's right. And, and that was us. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent that whole first week there. where It was just all the freshmen that were coming in and the walk-ons. Uh, before the rest of the players got there, because they wanted to really sort of introduce you to the system. And all I kept hearing from the receivers coaches, you got to work hard. You got to be like Cadillac. You got to run your routes like Cadillac. You got to, you know, bust your butt in the weight room like Cadillac. I'm like, who is this Cadillac they're <laughs> talking about? Who is this guy? Right. So, so then the players show up, at, and and uh, it turns out that Cadillac was Chris Collinsworth who was an all American uh. receiver at Florida and, and he was Mr. Everything. And, and I'm on the line, you know, sort of getting my food for lunch or dinner, whatever it was. And here's this guy, and he's, you know, six, four blonde hair, just skinny as a rail. Um, even though he could bench 300. Uh, and it was probably the fastest thing in the state of Florida at that time. Um, and I said, wait a second, you're a Cadillac. I'm supposed to do everything you do. And I, and I like took all the food off my tray and, and just, took exactly what he had and put that on my trip. <laughs> and so he, but he sat down with me and proceeded to talk to me and, and like hear my story and, you know, give me the whole all shucks bit. Uh, you know, when I was telling him that they, you know, how great the coaches were t- saying he was and just the nicest guy in the world. And so then he ended up getting drafted a couple years later, uh, by the Bengals. And I became a Bengals fan loosely because of Chris Collinsworth, who, despite what people may think of him as a broadcaster, I understand he is a little obnoxious at times, <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't have been a nicer human being and, and someone who took the time, even though he was a, a college all-American. Uh, And and really the big man on campus uh, to just sit here and sort of talk to this nobody from New York who was uh, there, you know, ostensibly to make him work hard and practice uh, and and become a friend with that person. So that that was really special, I thought. But, uh, you know, it was clear that after a year of playing football there, that that was not my future. The level of commitment that they were looking for was way more than I was able to give. Uh, And so it was right about uh, midway through my freshman year that I realized I may have to start thinking about something involving academics (laughs) because the the sports thing is not going to be my most of us do. Yeah. And and so I I was just maybe a little bit late to that game. Um, And so that led to law school. And, you know, for the rest is history.
1: There you go. And uh, Ray, you've done some pretty extraordinary things in your career as well. Being on national TV, that's a that's an old hat.
3: Well, it's another one of those things, you know, light, a bolt bolt of lightning struck. Um, when I was a young prosecutor back in '85 and '86, I met another young prosecutor. Her name is Nancy Grace, and Nancy was in the, the uh, district attorney's office in Fulton County. I was in DeKalb, and Through a mutual friend, we, we went out for, I think, cocktails maybe once or twice and stayed very good friends. During the OJ trial, Nancy was on local TV, and she took a swipe at Johnny Cochran, who somehow saw it, and... That created the Cochrane and Grace Show on court TV. Sadly, uh, Johnny Cochrane, and regardless of what some people think about him, uh, he is a fan, he was a fantastic jury trial lawyer. Ms Cochrane got very ill and, and passed away shortly after the start of the show and Nancy was up in New York doing court TV, affiliated with at the Time CNN and i started going up there a couple times a year maybe a little bit more and doing her court dv show and then cnn relocated court tv down here to uh then the phillips center phillips arena cnn center and i became a tuesday night regular from eight to nine with nancy yelling at me and telling the producers to shut off his mic and throwing <laughs> things at me and then we'd crack up during the break and you know the producers before the show would say, Okay, Ray, we just need you to make sure that we don't get sued when Nancy alleges everybody committed X, <laughs> Y, and Z crime right, right out of the shoot. So th- right. that's why I'm trained to start off with that presumption of innocence, <laughs> burden of proof on every single case I comment on, because that was kind of my my uh, job. And uh, so that was a lot of fun. There were long days, but I got used to getting there around 6 30, and they'd have a little meeting and give us the stories. And I'd gotten Makeup put on and learned how to not wear a certain kind of tie that this is before a high definition because the cameras would make the, the tie wave, you know, back and forth. So I learned a lot about it. You know, after the show, I would always say, how did it go? And she'd go, oh, relax. It's just television. <laughs> <You> know, we <laughs> right. go for a drink. Yeah. But, but that led to sort of, and that led to a lot of other things. I was on CBS 46 a lot with Stephanie Fisher, uh, early mornings, uh, Dave FM with Jimmy Barron. Uh, and then... One night uh, during the Michael Vick trial, in walks two local radio sports talk commentators, Sandra Golden and Steak Shapiro. And they were going to comment from that angle on Mr. Vick's process and trial. And, and after the show, stake Shapiro and Sandra and I went out to the Palm in Buckhead. And after a few uh, libations and some chit-chat, we cut a deal on a Palm table napkin. Uh, contract for me to appear every Friday morning at 8:20 to talk about the the latest uh, athlete that got himself or herself in some trouble, and um, a few years later, after that uh, programming stopped, I moved over to 6:80 to Fan and have been happy to work with the great voices over there. That you know, we have some different people at different times over yeah, the last sure. six or seven years, yeah. but that's the nature of the business. And uh, David Dickey has stuck with me through thick and thin, and and some uh, inappropriate comments. I try to keep them to a minimum, <laughs> yeah, Right. which, is, which is a smart thing to do, probably. Well, you know, David. David wants you to think that he's not paying attention. Right. He's, he's paying attention. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's but, it. Like. But- all- that's
1: yeah, a, yeah, that's the that's the uh, I think that's an entrepreneurial spirit right there, yeah, right? Like
3: all great businessmen they know exactly how many containers of two percent milk are in that back corner of the supermarket at any given time.
1: That's right. <laughs> and Bruce, you've been you've been uh, you've been doing radio and media for a long time as well.
2: Oh yeah, particularly uh, sports talk radio, and I, I got started a long time ago uh, back, uh, also with 790 The Zone uh, coming on in the afternoons. We'd, typically Ray would come on in the mornings. I would come on in the afternoons. Um, and, um, right when they had a show starting there, uh, called the two live stews, I met with Ryan Stewart and I thought, Oh, this is just a, per- a perfect, um, opportunity. And, and we hit it off. Great. And I became kind of a voice for the two live stews. Um, which is, if you remember the show, I mean, they, they huge. were like, it was like hip hop sports talk radio, yeah, was huge. uh, and, and it was great, and 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 so I got with them right from the start, and and then their show just blew up and took off like a rocket, but also like a rocket, it came crashing back to earth, and you know, kind of uh, unceremoniously so. Uh, and so after the two live stew show was was no longer part of the station, I uh, continued on and. and Various capacities, and and eventually uh, came over to 680 as well, and a, have been a fixture with the Chuck and Chernoff show for years. And we have a, a running gag where I give my talk on whatever the issues are in sports and the law, which there's always something. Ray, Ray and I are, are in such a great position because there's always some athlete somewhere doing something stupid that uh, puts them in conflict with the law and gives us something to talk about, you know. Um, but Inevitably, we get to a point in the show where uh, I offer to give my opinion and analysis of some sports topic, uh, and I get cut off, like right before. Every I can time, get to it. A- every single Slow segment down. ends with me getting cut off, and I-, I-, I have so many friends and listeners who's like. Hey, why did that happen? I really wanted to hear what you were going to say about like the Braves' uh, bullpen ro- rotation right. for the playoffs. I was interested in what you had to say. It's like, come on, man. I'm, I'm just a, a regular guy like anybody else who happens to have some insight onto the law. But when it comes to sports, I'm, I'm just like anybody else. Like, yeah, but so is everybody on that station. That's right. <laughs> yeah,
3: that's yeah. true. Yeah.
1: There's no experts in sports, really. I mean, maybe Alex Anthopoulos, you know, the GM of the Braves, you call him an expert because, you know, the, <laughs> yeah, the decisions certainly. he seems to make, you know, are, are – uh, all, they always go to plan
2: almost G- getting back to like how the legal career and, and, and things get shaped. And, you know, Ray mentions like he just knew this, he, he worked with this young prosecutor who they were friends. And then, so I mentioned having been on with uh, the two guys, <laughs> students for many years, uh, back sometime around 2010 or 11, Ryan Stewart who had played professional football for the Detroit lions for five years or so um, told me he had been contacted about this potential case against the NFL involving repeated blows to the head causing brain trauma that the NFL had lied about to its players. And uh, some lawyer had contacted him out from, from out in California and did I think this was a real case. And from that, uh, it led to me saying, well, yeah, I think it's a case and yeah, I don't think you need a California lawyer. I could do this for you right here. Uh, and, and you know that one call and, and, and the um, willingness to say yes, the, the entrepreneurial bent that both Ray and I share that uh, leads us to get into things that we're willing to take risks, um, that became sort of a turning point in my career in some respects, because it got me heavily involved in that NFL concussion litigation, where we ended up, um, I say we, because I had co-counsel uh, my friend, Mike McGlamry, who is more of a mass torts kind of lawyer uh, and had been a quarterback at Wake Forest, um, we ended up with about 500 clients that were all former NFL players and and on the leadership committees in the case that took down the NFL for their um, abuse of their players and and years and years of lying to the players about the dangers and the risks that they were subjecting themselves to of uh, long-term brain damage being caused by these repetitive blows to the head. So so that was just one of those things that because I had I was in that position uh, and you know going back to the, the early days of the career where i said i would take on any case that came along and try everything and if you needed it that was my new expertise when the opportunity came i said yes Uh, And it became really just just a a great sort of um, career-changing opportunity for me. So um, I I couldn't have anticipated that that would have uh, happened as I was graduating law school. It's just one of those things that kind of happened as we went along.
1: Yeah, man, it's fascinating. And as we, uh, we, we talked in the original opening segment about an NFL player, and we should keep it on the NFL topic as we wrap up this segment and go to the next, we'll focus on Brian Flores. He has filed suit against the NFL as well for discrimination. We'll get into that. We'll discuss it next with Bruce Hagen and Ray Giudice here on Extra 106.3.
0: The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like.
4: And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best.
0: This is your day in court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice on Extra 106.3.
1: Welcome back. Let's start with Brian Flores. He got an accidental congratulatory text from Bill Belichick. And that's kind of the center of a lawsuit that's uh, basically shaking up the NFL as we head into Super Bowl week. And apparently, the uh, former coach of the Dolphins, he filed suit on uh, last Tuesday because the Giants, the Broncos, and the uh, Dolphins all interviewed him. But then he didn't get any of the job, though he got a text saying he was going to get the job. Now he says that there is racial discrimination involved. How do y'all see this playing out?
2: Look, I've gotten to see the NFL practices up close and personal, I would not be the least bit surprised to say that, yeah, there are some decisions being made as far as coaching opportunities, as far as management positions, that people of color are being denied those opportunities for no other reason than the color of their skin. I think that Flores may be 100 percent right uh, on some of his claims and yet not be able to prove any of it, because certainly you have objective facts, and then you have subjective factors that go into hiring decisions. Just like we deal with in court when it comes to challenges to potential jurors being allowed onto jury service that might be race based. As long as you have a race neutral reason for it, then it's considered a legal challenge. And here you can say, okay, well, we hired this white job coach candidate over a black candidate, but from an intangible standpoint, knowledge of the playbook was better. We felt like his subtle leadership qualities were better. He had a better record in his previous job or, you know, whatever it might be, there's any number of subjective factors you can say that went into the hiring decision. To me, this case is going to come down to objective facts, statistics, having to do with just the numbers of folks who have come along and not been given opportunities Um, and didn't get coaching jobs when on a strict percentage basis, you would say that, okay, if you're going to match the percentage of head coaches to the percentage of applicants, you should have a higher number of minority candidates. That to me is the stronger type of evidence if it exists.
3: So I think that the NFL as usual has gotten itself into a jam aside from the fact that Bruce is absolutely right. Statistically having 32 coaches, head coaches and 32 GMs, which we forget that the, you know, that upstairs suite, uh, whether it's at major corporations or at our political, you know, we only have two African-American U.S., three African-American U.S. senators, I think, out of 50, out of 100. I should get my numbers right. I think part of the problem is if this if this case is litigated, as Bruce says— there's going to be some embarrassing emails somehow, someway, you know, the John Gruden type of garbage. You've got these owners who are, I mean, not Mr. Blank, because I hold Mr. Blank in the highest regard and esteem as, as one of the best people I've ever met. But some of them are full of themselves and mouthy and God only knows what they've typed or written And after uh, they have three or four cocktails. But if they settle financially, I think it's going to look awful. You know, here we just hush money. I don't think that's going to happen. I think this thing is going to get litigated. Now, for me, from from your day in court, I think Mr. Flores has one problem. He actually did get an NFL head coaching job with the Miami Dolphins. And just because you get that job, I don't think it means you get to keep it indefinitely sort of serve at the owner's whim, uh, and I don't necessarily that means you're going to get the next job. You might only get to interview for the next job, even if they've hired somebody. Remember, the the one of the basics of the Roselle rule was this. The interview for the NFL coaching job is, is as important as the experience. It's that two days in the conference room with your PowerPoint and your X's and O's and who you're going to draft and who you're going to cut and are you going to run the three, four, the four, five, I don't know what I'm talking about, but that's, it's in the presentation. And part of the Roselle rule was we need to start getting minority candidates into these rooms to make the presentations because you don't always get the first job. You don't always get the second job, but if you polish your presentation uh, and get the word gets out, Hey, we didn't hire them, but you guys might like them. And you get in the, the coaching tree, whether it's as an offensive coach like under Belichick, you do get interviewed. So I think there's a lot of issues to be addressed here, but I don't think Mr. Flores is going to make the direct connection that he was. Uh, didn't get the job with the New York Giants based on race. I think that's going to be his hardest. Obviously, it's the heart of the case.
2: And I know, Ray, you have mentioned the Roselle rule. I think you mean the The Rooney Rooney rule. rule. Uh, Sorry. But the the idea, the Rooney rule being that any NFL team that has a job opening for head coach is required to interview at least one minority. Right candidate, And so to some extent, um, yeah, it's exactly what Ray described it to be. And it's, it's uh, an opportunity to um, hone their presentation to the point that they do become the most attractive candidate. But others would tell you that the Rooney Rule is really just window dressing and that um, teams will bring in minority candidates and pay them to prepare and come in and interview uh, with no intention of hiring them, just uh, going through the motion of making sure that they are complying with this league-wide rule. Um, Since Mr. Flores filed his lawsuit, there have been uh, some hirings that took place in the NFL. Uh, Lovie Smith, was hired as a head coach. He's he's a minority candidate. Um, the former offensive coordinator from the San Francisco 49ers, McDaniel, was hired as the Dolphins head coach. He identifies as multiracial, so I don't know if uh, the NFL is going to point to that as a minority hire and try to um, use that. Given how bad the NFL is at PR, I suspect that they will bungle. <laughs> yeah, right.
3: no doubt. They'll screw it up and, and whatever somehow. Whatever
2: they do, we'll just make whatever worse, they do you know? will come out wrong. Yeah,
3: yeah. no nope. yeah question right. about it no but, doubt but, about but, it. but, the, but th- i th- do if think if I,
2: discovery goes forward in the flores case and we do get into emails and documents uh document production you know it will be very interesting and and one of the things flores said was that he was uh he was told to lose and incentivized financially to lose as the dolphins yeah. head coach so how do you look as a coach they point to your record say well we're firing you because you had a losing record uh or we're not going to hire you for this next job because you had a losing record. Right. When, when the team owner was saying, I'll pay you $100,000 per game to lose. Goodness.
3: Yeah, seems like, like a, know, from I, a horrible, from a, a horrible way to do it. Tip.
2: And I think there's a terrible spinoff
3: from what Bruce just addressed. There's 70,000 loyal Miami Dolphin fans who pay a premium price for those eight or nine home games and the one or two you know, practice games. If I pay that kind of money, even if they lose, they lose but I don't want to know that they've been instructed to lose or at least prohibited from winning. I mean, I'm not, that's not the product I paid for. And what about all the gamblers? I mean, now that we have legalized gambling uh, and if I'm uh, one of the, one of the stocks, you know, the companies that has pro draft or whatever, whatever these things are, I'm like, how do we, how do we set a number, you know, a five points plus or minus or over and under or all the other things. If the owner of the team, is giving an incentive for the coach, God forbid, the players to throw yeah. the game. Yeah. The last time there, there was a, you know, there was a famous point shaving scheme back in New York City basketball back in the fifties when New York City college basketball meant something. I think it was Fordham and NYU, Columbia, and all, the, all the, all the CNY, all the powerhouses, and that was a federal prosecution of the point shavers because because it affected the gamblers.
1: It seems like a big old mess and a bad precedent to set. Uh, Come to the end of the show. So uh, before we get out of here quickly, how do folks get a hold of you, Bruce, if they need your legal expertise?
2: Call me anytime, 404-522-7553. Email me, bruce, at hagen-law.com. That's H-A-G-E-N hyphen L-A-W dot com.
3: And right Ray Judice, 404 964 4185. As Bruce and I always say, call us even if you have a question that's not in our area of specialty. We will get you to that person or that resource. I did have a client this week who took me up on my offer. Let me look at your auto insurance policy. He had a 250, 500, 100, meaning 250 in liability per accident or car injury, 500 total, 100,000 in UM coverage, and he had a million dollar umbrella. And he said, it's because I listen to you and Bruce.
1: There you go. I love it. And we appreciate you lending us your ears. If you ever need the uh, expertise of Ray and Bruce, then reach out to them at the uh, the numbers that they just gave out and the contact info they just gave out. Otherwise, if you ever miss a show want to go back and listen to it, you can listen to uh, the podcast on the Extra 106.3 app or wherever you download your podcast. Get them there, too. This is your day in court on Extra 106.3. Make it a great weekend
4: 20 dealerships located throughout metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. This morning in the Atlanta airport, no one's missing a meal on Mac Wilburn's watch. With 11 restaurants to serve passengers, he's got dining for every destination. And it all started when Mac talked with First Horizon Bank about opening a franchise in the airport. Now it's open for business and cleared for takeoff. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Mac. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC.